More than 10 million Ukrainians have fled their homeland almost a month after Russia began shelling its neighbor. That's one quarter of the population, which has spawned a humanitarian crisis. While not being referred to as a war in Russia, it's a special military operation there. The aim is to remove the current regime in charge in Ukraine. Most of the West has leveled punishing economic sanctions on Russia. Others have stood by Russia's aggression. Ukraine has made no qualms about joining NATO, which Russia sees as provocation, despite Ukraine being a sovereign nation. NATO members have rejected a no-fly zone over Ukraine for fear of being dragged further into this fray. Our unpublished.vote question asked you, should NATO have boots on the ground to defend Ukraine? Yes, no, or unsure. Just over 59% said yes. Just under 35% said no, and over 6% were unsure. However you're watching and listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or our podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote, and then email your MP to tell them why. Now, joining us to discuss the Russian invasion of Ukraine and Canada's role to play, Elliot Tepper, Senior Fellow with the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Gilles Breton, former Canadian diplomat in Russia, Peggy Mason is the President of the Rideau Institute, and Gar Party is a former Canadian ambassador. And I thank you all for joining us. And Gar, we'll start with you. You call for Canada to, Canada to enforce a no-fly zone. Would it not incite Moscow even more? I don't think so. I think the thing, the, the I think the thing to re- remember right now, and one is, it's not a very static situation, as as we all know here. The the stalemate, which I think most observers are now observing, as far as military on the ground is concerned, and I guess my concern has been as we get into this stalemated period, and the Russians try to adapt their military uh, tactics and strategy on the ground. There is that, in effect, I think there is every evidence right now that they're resorting to all sorts of uh, off. Uh, off Ukraine uh, missiles, uh, bombing, and artillery attacks, largely on civilian populations. And I think that's where uh, NATO's policy should be emerging. I think hopefully this week we might see some movement on that. Everybody's getting together in Brussels, prime ministers, uh, heads of government on uh, Thursday, I think, ministers today or tomorrow. And so all of this sort of thing, I think they've got to start to realize here that they've got to up the ante a bit here in some way or another. I'm not saying that these have to be boots on the ground. There's there's an awful lot that NATO can do militarily that hopefully will give the Russians some degree of pause with regards to the uh, killing of civilians. And I think in doing so, there are some very slight indications, I'm not giving them much weight at this point, that there is uh, some opening right now for some degree of negotiations. And I think in the first instance, this sounds very much like uh, uh, the Ukrainians and the Russians might be able to do this. They've been talking off and on, of course, ever since the war began in one way or another. So I think the opportunity is there. And there's any number of other people who've offered themselves as some sort of intermediary to get it going. I think what you what NATO needs to do right now is to try to come up with some sort of a policy that starts providing more effective protection for the people of Ukraine, the civilians in particular, and in the hope that this will drive it into some form of negotiations. And, and then, in effect, we can start working our way out of the war that we're now dealing with. Uh, Jill, did the West antagonize Russia? Is the fear of NATO a real threat for Russia? 
Oh, well, of course, it's a matter of perception, of course. Yeah, you're right. I mean, some of my colleagues have referred to this as, you know, uh, what is the expression the use is poking the bear in the eye, so to speak. The point is that if you were to look at it from the point of view of Ukraine, what has happened is, of course, that the the uh, the the NATO countries have provided a lot of military assistance, but have have stopped short of providing the the significant military assistance that we discussed before that would make would have sort of no, uh, made Moscow pause really. So they they've provided a lot of um, how to say modern weaponry, like the famous javelin missiles and so on and so forth. And and of course also I think what what was seems to have happened is that there were also a lot of uh, NATO installations that were NATO related installations that were put on the ground in Ukraine but with respect to surveillance. So what you you from the point of view of uh, if I were to to look at it from the point of view of Ukraine I say look I'm a bit upset to you right now because you've you've co- provided you've poked my neighbor uh, but when it comes to time to defend me, so to speak, you say, well, no, uh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the president of the United States early on said, you know, there will be no no boys or girls will come to defend, will be on the ground in Ukraine. And, uh, you know, NATO countries have consistently refused to consider the idea of a no-fly zone. So, you know, the, the matter of provocation, of course, is a very, you know, a lot of people resent that when we say we have provoked Russia. Well, you know, uh, certainly, whether or not it was intended, whatever the, the you know the fact is that they they saw uh, NATO. Some people have referred to this. Some of the observers have referred to this as you know uh, Ukraine is not in NATO uh, de jure, but it is in in you know I think it's Mersheimer in the United States said that de facto. So there was a lot of equipment and you know I would say presence of of NATO countries in Ukraine that was kind of causing concern. Um, you know. Um, that is not a justification for the, the armed conflict, if you want, but uh, or the, the special military operation. But it's it's a it's a fact of life if you look at it in in terms of uh, you know what happened in terms, and especially if you look at it from the point of view of Ukraine. Uh, Peggy, uh, the Minsk Minsk Accords were, were were to end the violence, and and they have not. And, you know, it's all it's just gotten worse. Why why is that? Because they weren't implemented. And I'm so glad that there's been some discussion of negotiation because that's where we have to come back to because that's what Zelensky is trying to do and needs support. He needs the support he didn't get from most of NATO and United States prior to the conflict. I mean, the Minsk Accords were were signed in in, uh, 2014, but then there was a, a wider amendment which really tried to deal with some of the core issues, including the issue of of de facto neutrality for Ukraine in 2015. And there were many failed attempts and coming close to trying to implement uh, these agreements. But Zelensky in 2019, he was elected on a promise to implement them, but there's strong resistance and there's important political factions, hardline political factions in, in Ukraine that were against the agreements because they saw them as giving too many concessions to, uh, to Russia. So he actually wanted to implement them. And, and one of the things that I've said over and over again is that a country like Canada with the political influence that we have in Ukraine, we could have helped him with his, we could have helped President Zelensky with his political problem of, imp- of selling this deal as, as a good deal. 
Um, I mean, it's worth, you know, it's, it's worth remembering that, you know, neutrality, you know, there, 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 there are some pretty, pretty successful neutrals uh, in Europe. So it's not like you're being consigned to some outer, you know, place of, uh, of no return. But, um, but, but the basic problem with minks is that although they were, everyone mouths support for them, including uh, United States and NATO and the G7, and they were enshrined in a Security Council resolution in 2015. In fact, the political support, that the concrete political support that Zelensky needed in order to, 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 to get this implementation, and it would have involved, for example, a, there were local elections in the Donbass that were part of the deal, that would have required uh, a robust peacekeeping force, not an unarmed uh, OSC monitoring force. But that actually got quite far along in some of the discussions. But um, so, uh, frankly, if NATO, and it's quite clear, and we can talk about the risks to NATO, and I categorically disagree with, with, uh, with Gar on, on the point that, that if there is, uh, you can say, oh, well, uh, there really isn't, you don't think, you're, his comment was in response to your question, he doesn't think there's a danger of escalation if NATO enforces the no-fly zone. That's not good enough when we're talking about nuclear armed powers. All during the Cold War, a direct confrontation was avoided. And, uh, and, and so, um, that's the factor that NATO would have known, at least United States would have known, that they could not confront uh, Russia directly because of the risk of escalation to a nuclear war. And therefore, they should not have misled Ukraine for so long into believing that they were going to, to join NATO. And just in that point, let me quote a statement recently made by President Zelensky, which is heartbreaking. For years, we have heard about the apparently open door, but we have already also heard that we will not enter there. And these are truths and must be acknowledged. Of course, he's in the middle of a war when he's saying that. Better that that would have been made clear before the war. Uh, Gar, you know, the nuclear threat implied by Putin, is that the sole reason for not putting boots on the ground? Uh, no, I don't think. I think the threat is always going to be there. But in effect, if you accept the Russian words that they're using here as far as the use of nuclear, but, you know, the, Putin has been saying uh, various ways to present this sort of, and this is basically just used to scare us off. At this basis, where something there's a war going on, and in effect, if we accept that, that that is an absolute limitation on anything that we're going to do in terms of the military assistance to Ukraine, then we're not getting out of bed in the morning. We're just going to go there and sleep through this one. That is not sufficient in this particular arrangement. The fact that you mean the expansion of NATO, uh, you mean eastward, you mean the Russians. They always, and like most countries, when they have real danger on there to deal with, they blame other countries. Russia, that's what they're doing here. 
Our problem was back when NATO was on a run here in terms of the ex- its, its expansion into the former colonies of Russia, they shouldn't have uh, hedged their bets, although there was some ambiguity as far as Ukraine was concerned. But if you look at uh, Georgia as the other possibility here, you mean Georgia was willing and right, able to come into play here. And I think we should be. And the problem that we have with NATO right now, there is absolutely no ambiguity with regards to its policy because we have been scared to get out of bed, really, as far as the Russians are concerned because of the nuclear issue. And I don't, it's a serious issue. I don't disagree with that whatsoever. But I don't think that we have pushed the limits of what we can do here to reach it, to get to the point where the Ukrainians and the Russians can sit down and try to negotiate the problem that they've got and the Russian troops withdraw from uh, from the Ukraine. If we're not prepared to do that, well, forget about it. You mean the sending of the weapons and all that sort of thing. At the end of the day, we've got to do something that is effective militarily as far as the Russians are concerned. The Russians have buggered up their invasion on their own. You mean there's nothing to do with the West whatsoever here. The Russians, because they've come at Ukraine, something similar. They thought this was something like Grozny a few, you mean two decades ago, or something like flying the planes into Syria and bombing the hell out of defenseless cities down there. Well, the Ukraine as is a one tough nut, and in effect, they have created the problems themselves, and I don't think that we, in effect, should let them off the hook here with, in effect, showing them all of our cards before we start playing a real game with them. Can I, I just... Sure, to, jump, yeah. Just very quickly, all of the stuff I'm talking about with respect to negotiating and so on, and what could have been done and should have been done, has none of it is meant in any way to justify the invasion. The invasion is illegal, it's intolerable, but it's a fact that we have to address. But it is completely unjustifiable and has been, you know, rightly condemned under, under international law and, you know, a, a, a war crimes uh, investigation is, is underway. Uh, Elliot, uh, Russia isn't totally alone here. Um, do you expect that uh, they'll start drawing on some of their supporters? You know, we look at Saudi Arabia, we look at uh, China, we, you know, other, other countries, South Africa. Do you expect they'll be drawn into this conflict? Quite clearly, the possibility of additional ground forces open to them. They can draw on their uh, situation that they've created for themselves in Syria. One of the, uh, there's a lot of comment on this. Oh, well, you know, the Russians really are running out of people. They, they don't have enough reserves, so they need additional people. And that may be the case. But much more importantly, I believe, is that any of the mercenaries they bring in from Syria or reposition them from Libya where they've been using them, or maybe bring in the Wagner group again, the, that group of mercenaries, the primary advantage they have is they don't mind killing Ukrainians, whereas their own soldiers are having some difficulties in that regard. So the uh, one answer to your question is, can they get more troops, or more boots on the ground, more physical support? And the answer is yes, they have ways to do that. And not only that, but it's ways which are very chilling. But more broadly, there's the political and economic support. And that, of course, brings us to China. And China is um, in an interesting situation here. We have not long ago, February 4th, at the start of the Olympics, Mr. Putin, who does not let anywhere near him at all, went to to, uh, Beijing to meet uh, Xi Jinping, who hasn't been out of the country because of COVID for two years. So these two leaders had this, you know, 
alliance without borders, the unending. They were really, and what came out of that was some physical extra help for, uh, for uh, a backdoor escape from sanctions. So one of the things that came out, of that was a 30-year contract, adding already to the contracts that were in place since 2014 to buy oil and gas at a very favorable rate. China has, uh, at the same time, been saying publicly, uh, we only want peace. We are not supporting war. We are opposed to war. We want peace and tranquility. And they are now in a uh, fascinating situation because they can watch as everybody, including all of us today, are totally consumed with Ukraine and Russia. Nobody is paying any attention any longer to mobilizing a global alliance or a global front or global pushback against China. They are big winners here. Just in terms of the distraction that this is causing, they also see a a partner next to them, uh, an autocrat, anti-democratic, they share certain kinds of values, uh, both argue about the nature of communist solidarity here, but um, what they do see is that a junior partner in the alliance, which, has, which currently has claims to be a superpower, that is Russia, is being ground down. So at the end of this, they're going to find themselves possibly with Russia even more dependent and even more of a junior partner with China. So China then has access to a huge resource base. You know, mm-hmm. Russia is a, a vast treasure house of natural resources in, in, in addition to the oil and gas, but also wheat, but all kinds of minerals all of those now will become perhaps more accessible to China. On the other hand, um, we've talked about this over time uh, together, Ed. China, the big, big ticket item for China right now is the forthcoming uh, 20th Congress of the People's Party, of the Communist Party of China, where they will be confirming, uh, and again, Xi Jinping has been said, an unprecedented third term. No, this is really confirming him as president for life or leader for life. Uh, and he does not want an international environment disrupted by October that could in any way affect either his domestic standing at home, which is critical, of course, or the global environment. He also doesn't want to disrupt the economic prosperity of China. Increasingly, they're drawing on their internal resources. But right now, um, they are heavily reliant on buying, say, from Europe or interacting with Europe far more than any economic relationship they have with Russia, which is you know 1% or something like that of their total economic situation. So China is a, a very interesting player. They also are being looked to. And uh, uh, when we say, is there an off-ramp, uh, perhaps an off-ramp in terms of sanctions, is there an off-ramp China in some way or another, if they so chose, could perhaps really say enough is enough, Mr. Putin, this has to end. We're here to help facilitate an off-ramp out of this conflict. Uh, Gilles, would Russia have tried to invade Ukraine if it still had its uh, nuclear weapons? Oh, uh, theoretical question. Hmm. Um, in the right circumstances, it would have then uh, perhaps uh, focused on that, if you want. Uh, actually, hmm. yeah, that's, you know, I would say uh, it would have uh, sort of given what we referred to before as pause uh, in terms of military action. I've but got course, it down in there. They never had control over those weapons. Yes, that's Nuclear what... codes were always held by Russia. 
So yeah. this whole argument about the nukes they would have had is, you know, is a complete diversion. They gave them back because they couldn't use them and they couldn't even guarantee the safety of them. But they didn't give them back. They were yeah. huge amounts of yeah, money. Okay. You're, you're, you're right in that respect. If But if afterwards, for some reason, after all these years, Ukraine had been in a position to begin to acquire nuclear weapons, that would have been the first focus of the, any action. You know, theoretically, we're talking about you know, wild hypothesis here, because that is, as you said, I mean, military observers have, have just said that exactly. Those who were there actually watching it at the time on, on the ground, so to speak. So, yeah, you're right. Absolutely. In that respect. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, in the hypothetic, very hypothetical situation where Ukraine might have been able to to begin to acquire nuclear weapons. That, I think you have to say, for instance, there is there is actually uh, in some of the actions that the Russians have taken with respect to the city of Kharkiv, there was actually some some things that were allegedly targeted at these nuclear laboratories, laboratories so to speak. So I'm not sure about that. But of course, again, that's another issue. The fog of war. I'm mm -hmm. sorry. I mean, I, I deal with extreme caution with any news about this situation, because, of course, right now. It's very difficult to, to gather because, and of course, my my sense is that uh, I've changed my sources of information to Jerusalem Post, Al Jazeera, and Daily Sabah, because I think it's very interesting, especially Jerusalem Post, you would see, you get, uh, how to say, a reading there, which is, of course, I wouldn't say it's more accurate, but it, it, it gives you more uh, to digest, so to speak. The, the other thing is that, of course, you, you mentioned NATO, I just want to pick up that point. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the Israelis and the Turks have tried to act as negotiators in this process. You know, and of course, uh, they were reported last week as saying that uh, they were recommending to to Vladimir um, Zelensky that he should basically sign, make his peace agreement quickly with Russia. So that's interesting because, of course, you know that they seem to have, how to say, what I would call the inside track on what's going on in the discussions. So that's that's telling to me. And also the other issue is that, of course, there, there have been suggestions. Your question about NATO in, in, intervention, uh, they've been saying, you know, sort of publicly, the Turks and the Israelis, that, of course, uh, uh, Ukraine might be willing to accept neutrality and has essentially given up on, on NATO membership at this point in time. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, that, that to me is very interesting in terms of look, having a, a different perspective. I mean, I don't say our Western European perspective is one thing. To get a perspective that comes from the Middle East is, I think, very, how to say, uh, uh, provoking, so to speak, in terms of our assumptions. Mm, okay, I'll have to take, I'll have to take a look at that. Uh, yeah, just to jump in on that as well, because sure. there were other elements to the deal, like the uh, the Financial Times outlined actually the deal um, as of last Friday that Israel and Turkey were facilitating. And yes, it had the renouncing of joining NATO, promise not to host foreign military bases or weaponry, which gets into the Cuban Missile Crisis mm -hmm. deal resolution. Um, and uh, and Ukraine would also, this is very interesting because this is sort of the answer to the hyped Russian denazification uh, argument. And that is, and, and, and the response to that goes right back to Minsk. And is that Ukraine would enshrine in the constitution minority language rights uh, for Russian, for the Russian language. And so that, um, you know, that is a response to, you know, to that whole argumentation, which was already, as I said, 
in uh, in minxed. But the but the sticking point, according to the readout, or what you know, what the Financial Times said, Israel in particular, but also Turkey said, was that in exchange for all of this, Ukraine would get security guarantees. Um, I mean, essentially, both sides would get security guarantees. And, you know, that means the West has to back it. And that's a big, you know, that's a big, that's a big question mark. Um, and so, but the other point I would say here is, you know, it's, you can, yes, yes, Gar, it does mean NATO staying in bed in the morning, but there is, there, there is no effective military response beyond what NATO is already doing without taking the step, which NATO will, which the United States will not take, which is a direct confrontation between two nu- nuclear armed states. So, however you want to pl- you want to look at that, and however disgraceful and dis- you know disgusting you may find it, that is the reality. But realities change. I mean, that's the key thing that's here. And, I, and, the, and the and the Ukraine of today, as a result of this invasion, is not the Ukraine that was there in 2014 or even when Zelensky was elected two or three years ago. There is a Ukraine now that is somewhat a power in and of itself. The success that it has had militarily in stopping literally the Russians cold in terms of everybody sort of thought, assumed, the assumptions that everybody made, which the Russians themselves made, they shared with the world. Well, they and haven't the stopped the cold, up. though. I mean, definitely it's not going the way Putin wants, but unfortunately a, they no, haven't stopped. No, it's a stalemate. That's, well, that's the issue right that, now. Even that. Even yes, with- it, it, it really is a stalemate. And I think it's a, a, lot of, a lot of people looking at this, the military people are starting to see it. This is just not an American view. It's there all the way. But I would like to go back to one moment to the, uh, the role of the Israelis in all of this. It was only about, I think, three weeks ago when the prime minister of Israel was in Washington. Now, is the Israelis playing a stalking game here for the Americans in all of this? This is what I don't understand. And if they are, then I think they are in trouble in terms of they think that they're going to be acceptable as a interlocutor on these issues in Kiev. That's the problem that you're going to run into here. I think at the end of the day, and Zelensky has demonstrated, I think, all along that he and the and his and the people in his government are quite capable of sitting down and negotiating the Russians with themselves. What they don't want is to end up with the Ukraine that one is the uh, the eastern uh, quarter of the country has uh, become part of Russia. And there is a, an international guarantee as far as uh, Crimea is concerned that it's no longer acceptable as part of the Ukraine. I think this kind of dismemberment that's going to go on goes right back to, and it's all, in some ways, it's more fundamental than the nuclear issue here in that sense of, in effect, allowing, in effect, this kind of invasion to change the nature of a country. Because the Ukraine, you mean the Russians insisted that the Ukraine be a member of the United Nations, what, back in 1945? This was one of Stalin's requests when Belarus and the Ukrainians, who always sat next to the Belarusian, they were showing up there. They have signed on to the Charter of the United Nations, and if we're, NATO is not protect, if NATO is not prepared to go forward here and in it with a more robust stance uh, militarily, then I think because then the world has lost something very, very significant. 
it doesn't uh, need it doesn't need a military. I mean, the sanctions are absolutely crippling. And one of the huge problems here is that the sanctions are wreaking havoc in China. And I'm glad, Elliot, you mentioned that. That they're wreaking havoc on the global economy. They're also they're wreaking havoc on food security. There are many countries now, African countries and in the Middle East, staring down the face of famine because Ukraine and Russia, Russia is the biggest food exporter, and Ukraine is is uh, one of the largest as well. So, and the sanctions are wreaking absolute havoc. So it's not like, this is not a free ride for Putin at all. And what we need to be looking at for him is off-ramps, credible off-ramps, but Ukraine too. The deal that's going to be reached has to be more than mixed. There's no doubt about that for both, I mean, for, for Ukraine, which means, and, and in terms of the Donbass, there has to be uh, a going back on the independent step on the independent status and there's a way there's a way to do that but there also is the whole EU angle and what the EU can offer more tangibly given the heroic resistance that Ukraine has shown so there's lots here for a negotiation and there's huge pressure on Russia and the longer this goes on and the more you know the more we've never seen a nuclear a nuclear power, under armed power under such pressure. And that's why off ramps are absolutely necessary. And the United States getting into this and behind this negotiation is really important. Uh, Elliot, I'm thinking the long-term impact on on Russia due to this invasion. We talked about economic sanctions, but as this kid, as this goes on, you know, that those are going to be crippling, uh, you know, the, the military and the spending in the military right now has got to be, you know, huge as well. And let's face it, they're still dealing with COVID and, and other things in Russia. What, what's the what's the long term impact on Russia? Are they just going to be a pariah after this? You know, uh, I sometimes view this as a race between will Mr. Putin have to adjust his policy because at home? because the sanctions hitting home, or are we going to change our policy because those sanctions are hitting us? How long, which sides has the, the patience to outweigh uh, the impact of sanctions uh, on oil and, and in particular? You know, we have high prices at the pump, there's elections coming. This is true of all the democratic societies which are, which are um, uh, in this increasing coalition, uh, shockingly quickly. Uh, the overlap now between NATO and the EU is, is the, the unity and the pushback against autocracy and despotism. I think this is a big, big turnaround. But look at it the other way as well, Ed. If Russia succeeds, they went into this, Mr. Putin, to change the geopolitics of uh, the post-war consensus. If they succeed in basically incorporating Russia and Belarus, doesn't look too likely. But if they succeeded, which is their goal, then they now have armament all across facing all those NATO countries, which are our, remember, our allies as well. And we have people in Latvia as part of Operation Reassurance. A lot rides on how the next few weeks turn out and how this is handled. I'd like to quickly comment just one more thing on Mm -hmm. China as well. The situation for China is very interesting because a central plank, a core plank of their entire uh, existence in modern times is that they are opposed to foreign intervention and they believe in the sanctity of borders. And now they're backing, de facto, an invasion. At the same time, there's Taiwan. So 
they have, I'm sure, watched very, very carefully what happened uh, that eight days an effective sanctions regime was imposed on China, on Russia, as you put it, to make them a pariah. And they meanwhile have their eye on Taiwan, uh, which they say is totally different. It's not at all the same uh, because, you know, Ukraine, uh, according to Russia, was never a country. Uh, but of course, to the Chinese, Taiwan was never a country. So mm. I think keeping an eye on Taiwan out of all this and China's reaction to what's going on, as if it's a stalemate, as this goes on, uh, I think that's going to be also a crucial factor. They abstained, of course, and I think that says in the UN Security Council resolutions condemning the invasion, China yes. abstained. Yes, they and did. they also abstained in the General Assembly one. They did, yeah. So that that shows that it's a, it's it's not an it's not an easy situation for them either, and uh, and certainly on on the broader sanctions impact uh, and and the intertwining of China with the global economy. So you know it's not a free. They're not you know, and in fact, there's was some commentary that they actually felt played by uh, by Russia, Russia coming and the reaching those agreements and the fanfare during the Beijing Olympics, and then right after, uh, and and it seemed quite clear that 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 uh, that Putin didn't share his we're going to invade in a couple of days uh, with China. So it's it's a it's a more nuanced and a more complex happily situation than the two of them lining up on one side against against the rest. And, and of course, I think they should make power. No, the other point to make on China, I think, is in terms of what it's uh, this invasion has done to American policy, I think, vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. You know, I mean, for the last, well, ever since Obama announced a pivot towards China as far as American policy was concerned, and then Trump sort of semi-reinforced that during this period. And what are we back to right now is American power. They really cannot handle two large-level crises. One with China and one with Russia. Russia will dominate American policy at least well into the next uh, presidential set of elections here. And so in a sense, China has done very, as you, Elliot, have said earlier, China has done exceptionally well through all of this and have played the game, I think, quite effectively. But uh, nobody has mentioned the Ottawa in terms of any of this. Uh, and I don't want to emphasize it, but I was intrigued by suddenly uh, this government in Ottawa has discovered the North and they think that the Russians, you know, I mean, they've used a Russian bear sort of surging down through the uh, our Arctic islands here. Uh, I find this absolutely amazing that this has come up in this way. And they've used, in effect, the law of the sea that the, the bid that the Russians have put in in terms of the uh, uh, under underwater extension of a mountain range that comes down a, a bit closer to where Santa Claus lives in terms of what we think so anyway. But in effect, we're using exactly the same law as a defense against what the Russians are up against. And we've used the same law basically to extend our continental shelf on the East Coast here. But in why suddenly? In the Arctic, Russia has abided fully. They they are following the rules with respect to the UN law of the sea. So exactly. I mean, they're following them. Yeah, but, but, and I actually but the question did mention, I did mention Canada. I said I lamented the fact that we yeah. did not put our 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 great political weight behind yeah. helping Zelensky yeah. implement the Minsk agreements. 
Yeah, but my, I guess my question here is throwing out here is suddenly what's, what's, a, what's caused this to happen in Ottawa and the way that it's developed in terms of as, 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 as its support for a, a larger defense budget doesn't seem to be Ukraine. It's a larger budget so that we can go and in effect do more in the north. Is that, is that a rationale that's acceptable? No, it's not. And, we're, and by the way, on the defense budget spending, yeah. Yeah. the 70% increase over 10 years announced in 2017 is really just starting to come online now. We haven't been able to spend the current increased no. amounts, annual amounts, yeah. to the tune of $1 to $2 billion a year. So the idea yeah. that we need to have another new increase, which we won't be able to absorb, is, is laughable. But there's been a whole yeah. argument. There's been a longstanding argument by the defense lobby about how critical the Arctic was. So yeah. that's probably just trying to, you know, respond or nod in some way to that. All right, folks, uh, another great discussion on a, well, very crucial issue in our in our country and in, in our world right now. I want to thank our guest today on Unpublished TV. Elliot Tepper, Senior Fellow at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. Gilles Breton, former Canadian diplomat in Russia. Peggy Mason is the president of the Reno Institute and Gar Party, a former Canadian ambassador. And I want to thank you for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.